Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 25. In the last episode, I wrapped up what is known about Astarte, a Canaanite deity that managed to stick around much longer than expected. This week, I'm pressing forward in the Book of Judges, specifically in the middle of Chapter 2. And with that, let's get started. The next part of the text is key to understanding the rest of the book, and for that matter, the pivot that the tribes of Israel are about to take. From the New Revised Standard The Israelites abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and Astartes. This, as expected, made God angry. He gave them over to plunderers, who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around to the point that their enemies overwhelmed them, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever the Israelites marched out against their foes, the hand of the Lord was against them, bringing misfortune, as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them through Moses and then Joshua. In all of this, the Israelites were in constant distress, but God hadn't given up. He raised up judges, who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. Despite this deliverance, they did not listen even to these judges, for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them, and turned aside from what had been taught to them and from the ways of their ancestors. And that's how the Israelites transitioned from the Exodus to the intermediate period when they occupied the land and were obedient to the period of the judges. The remainder of chapter 2 sets the stage for the cycle the people would be stuck in over the next few hundred years. Straying from God, being subdued by their enemies, crying to God for help, a judge is raised up, deliverance, all to repeat with the fall to the Baals or whoever the false deity du jour was. The last sentence of the chapter gives a reason why the other residents of Canaan had not been driven out to serve as a test to the Israelites. And that's it for Judges 2. No new people, places, or things are introduced. Judges 3 kicks off with the list of people that remained. The five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Bel-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. Embedded in this are two places I haven't yet covered, the Mounts Lebanon and Baal Hermon. I'll address the latter first. The location of Mount Baal Hermon is not exactly known. It's assumed to have been in northern Israel or southern Lebanon, perhaps on Mount Hermon itself, or it may even be another name for Mount Hermon. This would certainly explain why it's presented as it is in Judges, as Mount Baal Hermon. In this location in the text, it's mentioned as not being involved in the invasion of Canaan by the Israelites. It also gets mentioned later in 1 Chronicles as an area occupied by the tribe of Manasseh. There's a small contingent of researchers that have proposed the name may have also been the name of a leader of the tribe in the area. If true, the bell in the name would translate to Lord and in the region known as Hermon the Lord, ruler of Hermon. And that's it for Baal Hermon. Next is Mount Lebanon, 
which I'm actually surprised I haven't covered yet. While it's presented in the text as a single mountain, we now think of it as a mountain range, found, as the name suggests, in the modern country of Lebanon. The range extends pretty much the entire length of the modern country, which would place it pretty much north of the territory occupied by the Israelite tribes. Unlike most of the region, and owing to the height of its peaks, the mountain range actually receives what's described as a substantial amount of precipitation, including snow, which averages around 13 feet, 4 meters per year, near the peaks. A snowpack that, when it melts, feeds the streams, then the rivers in the region. Those peaks rise over 10,000 feet, just over 3,000 meters from the level of the Mediterranean Sea, found just to the west. On the slopes are both oaks and pines, along with the legendary cedars of Lebanon. The last remaining old-growth groves of these cedars are on the high slopes of Mount Lebanon, at a place that's been designated the Cedars of God World Heritage Site. Because it may never come up again, I'll spend a minute on the historical significance of those trees. They are found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu travel to the legendary cedar forest to kill its guardian and cut down its trees. While early versions of the story place the forest in Iran, later Babylonian accounts of the story locate the cedar forest in Lebanon. The Lebanon cedar is also mentioned several times in the Bible. Hebrew priests were ordered by Moses to use the bark of the tree in the treatment of leprosy. Solomon secured cedar timber to build the temple in Jerusalem. Also, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah used the Lebanon cedar as an example of loftiness in a metaphor for the pride of the world. Finally, a psalmist said, The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Obviously, these trees, found currently only in Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey, were highly esteemed. The Phoenicians used the forest from Mount Lebanon to build their ship fleet. They also traded the lumber with their neighbors. And they didn't just harvest it, but they, and also those that followed, consistently replanted and restocked the range, doing this as late as the 16th century when the forest was still considered substantial. Unfortunately, since then, its natural growth forests are considered vulnerable. And that's it for the trees, back to the mountains. The name Mount Lebanon traces back to the Semitic root, which translates to white, probably a reference to the snowy peaks. In the biblical text, King Haram of Tyre, sent workers with cedar wood from the Lebanon mountains to aid in the building of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, a.k.a. Solomon's Temple. Like I mentioned a minute ago, the Phoenicians used cedar to build ships. In order to harvest the wood, they were the first to establish villages on Mount Lebanon where the residents would make a living harvesting the trees and shipping the lumber to the coast. Eusebius chronicled that Emperor Constantine destroyed a temple of Venus on the summit of Mount Lebanon. After the 5th century AD, Christian monks arrived in the region, 
spreading Christianity to the northernmost parts of the mountain range. In the late 8th century, a group known as the Maradites settled in northern Lebanon following the order of the Byzantine emperor. They were on a mission to raid Islamic territories in Syria. They intermarried with the local population, refusing to leave after the emperor struck a deal with the Muslim caliph of Damascus. In 1291, and after the fall of Acre, the last crusader outpost in the Levant, the remnants of the European settlers who succeeded in escaping capture by the Mamelukes settled in the northern part of Lebanon and became part of the society established centuries earlier by the monks. For these reasons, the modern country of Lebanon has the highest rate of Christianity in the Middle East, with an estimated one-third to nearly one-half of the population being considered Christian. But in the time between the departure of the Crusaders and the creation of the modern country of Lebanon, just like the greater region, the Lebanon mountains were primarily under the control of the Islamists, then Ottomans. Throughout the 18th and into the early 19th century, an increasing number of Christians, known exactly as Maronite Christians, settled in the mountains. Also in the area were the Druze, a group which I've previously covered. The Druze viewed these Christian settlements as a threat to their power in the Mount Lebanon region, which led to a series of skirmishes in the mid-19th century, all leading up to a massacre of thousands of Christians. While the Druze won militarily, at least initially, the massacre led European countries, mostly France and Britain, to intervene politically on behalf of the Christians, which led to Mount Lebanon being divided into two areas, one for the Druze and the other for the Christians. With that, many of the Druze immigrated to southern Syria, and the Ottomans, who were still ruling the region, set the Christians up in a semi-autonomous district, which lasted until the end of World War I, when the greater region would become part of the French Mandate. The country of Lebanon gained its independence from France during World War II. There is much more to this with Nazis, General de Gaulle, and political intrigue, but that's outside of the scope of this podcast. Though there's just one interesting bit I can't skip over. Lebanon's unwritten National Pact of 1943 requires that its president be Maronite Christian, its Speaker of the Parliament be a Shia Muslim, its Prime Minister be Sunni Muslim, with the Deputy Speaker of Parliament and the Deputy Prime Minister being Greek Orthodox, a way to try to force the major religions in the country to get along. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Judges 3. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, 
If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.